0: I'm Andy Greenberg, and you're listening to Storybound. I'm going to read a chapter of my book, Sandworm, a new era of cyber war and the hunt for the Kremlin's most dangerous hackers. My book, Sandworm, is about a group of Russian hackers known as Sandworm that's carried out what I would say is the first full-blown cyber war to have ever taken place. And that cyber war kind of climaxed in a, a an attack called NotPetya, unleashed in Ukraine in 2017, that spread to the rest of the world and ultimately cost $10 billion in global damage. But leading up to that attack, Sandworm also carried out two cyber attacks on Ukraine's power grid that caused blackouts. And the second of those attacks, which was targeting the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, was designed not just to turn off the power, but actually to cause physical destruction to electrical equipment in a transmission station north of the capital. So the chapter of the book that I'm about to read is actually kind of a flashback. It's a bit of historical context about the sort of technical underpinning for that sort of destructive attack on power grid equipment. And it's about a cyber attack experiment that was carried out not by the Russian government, but by our own.
1: Welcome to Storybound. Presented by Lithub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just one moment, you'll hear Andy Greenberg read an excerpt from his novel, Sandworm, accompanied with an original score by Daniel Frankuizen. After that, we'll have a riveting discussion with Andy about cyber warfare and the process of researching Sandworm.
0: On a piercingly cold and windy morning in March 2007, Mike Asante arrived in an Idaho National Laboratory facility 32 miles west of Idaho Falls, a building in the middle of a vast, high desert landscape covered with snow and sagebrush. He walked into an auditorium inside the visitor center where a small crowd was gathering. The group included officials from the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Energy, and the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, executives from a handful of electric utilities across the country and other researchers and engineers who, like Asante, were tasked by the National Lab to spend their days imagining catastrophic threats to American critical infrastructure. At the front of the room was an array of video monitors and data feeds set up to face the room's stadium seating like mission control at a rocket launch. The screen showed live footage from several angles of a massive diesel generator. The machine was the size of a school bus, a mint-green, gargantuan mass of steel weighing 27 tons, about as much as an M3 Bradley tank. It sat a mile away from its audience in an electrical substation, producing enough electricity to power a hospital or a Navy ship and emitting a steady roar waves of heat coming off its surface rippled the horizon in the video feed's image. Asante and his fellow INL researchers had bought the generator for $300,000 from an oil field in Alaska. They'd shipped it thousands of miles to the Idaho test site, an 890-square-mile piece of land where the national lab maintained a sizable power grid for testing purposes, complete with 61 miles of transmission lines and seven electrical substations. Now, If Asante had done his job properly, they were going to destroy it. And the assembled researchers planned to kill that very expensive and resilient piece of machinery, not with any physical tool or weapon, but with about 140 kilobytes of data, a file smaller than the average cat GIF shared today on Twitter. Three years earlier, Asante had been the chief security officer at American Electric Power, a utility with millions of customers in 11 states from Texas to Kentucky. A former Navy officer turned cybersecurity engineer, Asante had long been keenly aware of the potential for hackers to attack the power grid. But he was dismayed to see that most of his peers in the electric utility industry had a relatively simplistic view of that still theoretical and distant threat. If hackers did somehow get deep enough into a utility's network to start opening circuit breakers, the industry's common wisdom at the time was that staff could simply kick the intruders out of the network and flip the power back on. We could manage it like a storm, Asante remembers his colleague saying. The way it was imagined, it would be like an outage and we'd recover from the outage, and that was the limit of thinking around the risk model. But Asante, who had a rare level of crossover experience between the architecture of power grids and computer security, was nagged by a more devious thought. What if attackers didn't merely hijack the control systems of grid operators to flip switches and cause short-term blackouts? but instead reprogrammed the automated elements of the grid, components that made their own decisions about grid operations without checking with any human. In particular, Asante had been thinking about a piece of equipment called a protective relay. Protective relays are designed to function as a safety mechanism to guard against dangerous physical conditions in electric systems. If lines overheat or a generator goes out of sync, It's those protective relays that detect the anomaly and open a circuit breaker, disconnecting the trouble spot, saving precious hardware, even preventing fires. A protective relay functions as a kind of lifeguard for the grid. But what if that protective relay could be paralyzed, or worse, corrupted, so that it became the vehicle for an attacker's payload? That disturbing question was one Asante had carried over to Idaho National Laboratory from his time at the electric utility. Now, in the visitor center of the lab's test range, he and his fellow engineers were about to put his most malicious idea into practice. The secret experiment was given a code name that would come to be synonymous with the potential for digital attacks to inflict physical consequences, Aurora.
1: The music you've been listening to in this episode was composed by Daniel Frankweisen. And now for a brief commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Andy Greenberg. And now we return from our break.
0: The test director read out the time, 11.33 AM. He checked with the safety engineer that the area around the lab's diesel generator was clear of bystanders. Then he sent a go-ahead to one of the cybersecurity researchers at the National Lab's office in Idaho Falls to begin the attack. Like any real digital sabotage, this one would be performed from miles away, over the internet. The test's simulated hacker responded by pushing roughly 30 lines of code from his machine to the protective relay connected to the bus-sized diesel generator. inside of that generator, until that exact moment of its sabotage, had been performing a kind of invisible, perfectly harmonized dance with the electric grid to which it was connected. Diesel fuel in its chambers was aerosolized and detonated with inhuman timing to move pistons that rotated a steel rod inside the generator's engine. The full assembly was known as the prime mover, roughly 600 times a minute. That rotation was carried through a rubber grommet designed to reduce any vibration and then into the electricity-generating components. A rod with arms wrapped in copper wiring housed between two massive magnets so that each rotation induced electrical currents in the wires. Spin that mass of wound copper fast enough and it produced 60 Hz of alternating current, feeding its power into the vastly larger grid to which it was connected. A protective relay attached to that generator was designed to prevent it from connecting to the rest of the power system without first syncing to that exact rhythm, 60 hertz. But Asante's hacker in Idaho Falls had just reprogrammed that safeguard device, flipping its logic on its head. At 11.33 a.m. and 23 seconds, the protective relay observed that the generator was perfectly synced. But then its corrupted brain did the opposite of what it was meant to do. It opened a circuit breaker to disconnect the machine. When the generator was detached from the larger circuit of Idaho National Laboratory's electric grid and relieved of the burden of sharing its energy with that vast system, it instantly began to accelerate, spinning faster like a pack of horses that had been let loose from its carriage. As soon as the protective relay observed that the generator's rotation had sped up to be fully out of sync with the rest of the grid, its maliciously flipped logic immediately reconnected it to the grid's machinery. The moment the diesel generator was again linked to the larger system, it was hit with the wrenching force of every other rotating generator on the grid. All of that equipment pulled the relatively small mass of the diesel generator's own spinning components back to its original slower speed to match its neighbor's frequencies. On the visitors' screens, the assembled audience watched the giant machine shake with a sudden terrible violence, emitting a sound like a deep crack of a whip. The entire process from the moment the malicious code had been triggered to that first shutter had spanned only a fraction of a second. Black chunks began to fly out of an access panel on the generator, which the researchers had left open to watch its internals. Inside, the black rubber grommet that linked the two halves of the generator shafts was tearing itself apart. A few seconds later, the machine shook again as the protective relay code repeated its sabotage cycle, disconnecting the machine and reconnecting it out of sync. This time, a cloud of gray smoke began to spill out of the generator, perhaps the result of the rubber debris burning inside of it. Asante, despite the months of effort and millions of dollars in federal funds he'd spent developing the attack they were witnessing, somehow felt a kind of sympathy for the machine as it was being torn apart from within. You find yourself rooting for it, like the little engine that could, Asante remembered. I was thinking, you can make it. The machine did not make it. After a third hit, it released a larger cloud of gray smoke. That prime mover is toast, an engineer standing next to Asante said. After a fourth blow, a plume of black smoke rose from the machine 30 feet into the air in a final death rattle. The test director ended the experiment and disconnected the ruined generator from the grid one final time, leaving it deathly still. In the forensic analysis that followed, the lab's researchers would find that the engine shaft had collided with the engine's internal wall, leaving deep gouges in both and filling the inside of the machine with metal shavings. On the other side of the generator, its wiring and insulation had burned and melted the machine was totaled. In the wake of the demonstration, a silence fell over the visitor center. It was a sober moment, Asante remembers. The engineers had just proven without a doubt that hackers who attacked an electric utility could go beyond a temporary disruption of the victim's operations they could damage its most critical equipment beyond repair. It was so vivid you could imagine it happening to a machine in an actual plant and it would be terrible, Asante says. The implication was that with just a few lines of code, you can create conditions that were physically going to be very damaging to the machines we rely on. But Asante also remembers feeling something weightier in the moments after the Aurora experiment. It was a sense that like Robert Oppenheimer watching the first atomic bomb test at another US national lab six decades earlier, he was witnessing the birth of something historic and immensely powerful. I had a very real pit in my stomach, Asante says. It was like a glimpse of the future.
1: don't press pause or skip over to the next episode just yet. There's still more story bound to come. After the break, we'll have a chat with Andy Greenberg about his
0: new book, Sandworm.
1: And we are back from our break as we sit with Andy Greenberg and chat about his new book, Sandworm. Andy, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, let's just get right into it. Your book is structured so that all of your historical flashbacks are contained in one complete section in the book as opposed to being interspersed all throughout the book. Why
0: did you present the flashbacks this way and how did that affect the book's structure overall? So I think that those historical chapters are important not just because they put Sandworm in context but in part because they show how it was in fact us in the West, in the United States, who opened this Pandora's box of cyber attacks that have serious global and sometimes physical consequences. How did exactly your research affect the
1: process of writing
0: Sandworm? I knew most of the arc of Sandworm's kind of escalation, the cyber war that it had carried out in Ukraine that had sort of gotten worse every year as it sort of outdid itself one year after another with more and more disruptive and destructive attacks culminating in Notpetya, this you know most devastating cyber attack in history. That had already all happened when I started to write the book. What started to get messy was that Sandworm kept going kept carrying out new attacks and in 2018 as i was working on the book they uh carried out a disruptive sabotage cyber attack on the winter olympics for instance i at some points was thinking you know there has to be an ending to this story sandworm uh you know i don't know if i'm ever going to track them down i don't know if anybody's ever going to stop them or hold them accountable and Ultimately, there was a kind of lull in Sandworm's cyber attacks that allowed me to find an ending. And the ending really was one that I made for myself, which was that I kind of made it my own personal detective story, with, of course, the help of amazing security researchers who are characters in, in the book. I made it my mission to figure out who Sandworm is. And with new developments rising all the time, you know, lull or
1: no lol, I can imagine how your timeline for collecting data keeps extending further
0: and further out into the future, right? Just this week as we're recording this, Sandworms hackers were indicted for the first time. And the U.S. Department of Justice put actual names and faces to this group, most of whom I'd never seen before. Only one of the six hackers um, was a name that I knew. So it's been four years since I began tracking this group and only now in some ways is like the final bow being put on the story. I hope that someday I'll be able to add another afterward to another edition that captures those final details. So what stories didn't make it into the book? At one point Sandworm actually hacked into hundreds of millions of routers around the world like including home routers the kind like your wi-fi router and um there was a real fear that they were going to use these to carry out some terrible disruptive cyber attack and this all came to light while i was in ukraine where you know sandworm usually inflicts its most kind of damaging cyber attacks but security researchers and i believe the fbi basically uncovered the attack in progress and helped to prevent it and so that attack failed and i left it out because it was one of the rare kind of very like large-scale attacks that sandworm did that didn't come to anything and that didn't actually do any damage were there any hypotheses of yours that ultimately didn't pan out the way that you had expected it's it's a sensitive topic but i at some points had theories about certain people who i believed had worked in concert with Sandworm, including you know, people in the private sector who had maybe acted as contractors to Sandworm. And I chased those theories and pulled on the threads. I was never able to fully prove it in a way that I would be comfortable enough making that accusation. So I ultimately left those parts out of the book. It's comforting to know that you, as a journalist, you know, are not willing to publish
1: something unless you feel that the research strongly supports the theory you're putting forward. Am I right?
0: A few months after the book was published, the U.S. and U.K. governments and then later the NSA and then the European Union did put out statements that confirmed the identity of Sandworm. And then, you know, just this past week, as we're speaking, those hackers were criminally charged. So... The theory was confirmed, but I was, you know, kind of going out on a limb with the theory when the book went to press. So that's, you know, I'm mostly just relieved not to have gotten it wrong.
1: All right. So what's some further recommended reading that you might suggest to anyone who has just devoured Sandworm or for someone who finishes it and still doesn't feel satiated?
0: Now anybody who wants to can go read the U.S. Department of Justice indictments that in legal terms essentially spells out, in some cases with details that I didn't have, how these hackers did what they did. And um, it's a kind of like prosecutor's version of the book. You know, it's, it lays out the whole rap sheet of these attacks, including an attack on the parliament of the country of Georgia, for instance, that um, I... That happened after the book was published and how would you say people's interest in these cyber
1: attacks has evolved over time as you've seen it since you know your first your
0: obsession first igniting for a long time i felt like i was in this small club of people who were obsessed with sandworm and almost weren't sure if we were right that this was all being done by one little group of hackers and now the department of justice has confirmed that and it's a headline that I am reading everywhere and it's its just very strange when these little weird obsessions become front page news for the whole world. Alright, so million dollar question. Why should it be front
1: page news? What is there to be so afraid of as citizens? Let's say this little excerpt and our conversation hasn't convinced some of our listeners so
0: far. Well, Sandworm is still out there, you know, just because they've been criminally charged, it's very unlikely that they'll ever be arrested or see the inside of a courtroom anywhere because they're in Russia. Sandworm will probably continue to carry out cyber attacks, um, hopefully not of the same scale. It really is a new era. You must have witnessed a lot of change from your position. Being the kind of most cyber war focused reporter at Wired magazine, there are no shortage of state sponsored hacker teams out there to write about, and they will continue to cause chaos. And I don't just mean Russia, but North Korea and Iran and even China. This is a new era. There is a whole new domain of conflict unfolding. It sounds like
1: psychological warfare via technological destabilization.
0: That's true. I mean, like when when people say like psychological warfare, I think that they're thinking of disinformation camp like operations, but what Sandworm does is so much more direct than that. I mean, um, they are they're breaking stuff, they're like sabotaging the systems that our societies are built on. It is often with effects that are almost like physical warfare, but yeah, you're right that it's still psychological warfare in the sense that it's designed to make people feel uh you know destabilized to make people distrust that their government can protect them, to make Ukraine, for instance, look like a failed state. So it is an influence operation in a way, you could say. You must be familiar with Darknet Diaries, correct? For sure, yeah. I actually just recorded yes. with him
1: right before this. That's awesome. Jack and I have known each other since around 2016, and he came on the show you know, the first season. So you were both talking more in depth about Sandworm, I'm guessing?
0: Yeah, no, I, I did an episode of Darknet Diaries about Petya from the book. And then we're doing another one. This new one is about the Olympics attack. Uh, so you're including new information about the hackers being indicted. Yeah, I was on with him like just a little while ago. And I talk to Jack a lot these days. He's, uh, Darknet Diaries is great.
1: You heard the man. Go check out Darknet Diaries and buy yourself a copy of Andy Greenberg's new book, Sandworm. It's the kind of book that spins your world upside down and inside out. The music on this episode was composed by Daniel Frank Huizen. You'll get to hear more of his work this season, but for now, check him out. He's a wicked cellist and a delight to work with, and he's got an album coming out soon. We also want to thank Wired Magazine, as well as Veronica Goldstein, Eric Lupfer, and Sarah Nisbet over at Penguin Random House. Storybound is a range produced and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub and Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate. This episode was mixed with the help of Tim Carplus, We've got new episodes hitting your podcast feed every Tuesday. So make sure you're subscribed. And while you're at it, find us on Instagram at StoryBoundPod. See you same time
0: next week. The Pod Podglamour. A Sonic Universe.